This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, you're listening to Good Things, the show where we talk to good people who are doing good things. I'm Dashran Johan. And on the show with me today is Mira Samander. She's a lawyer and a veteran women's rights activist. Mira was the longest serving president of the Women's Aid Organization at 11 years. She also served as, at one point as the president of the Association of Women Lawyers for five years. Welcome to the show, Mira. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Mira, let's go all the way back. Um, you've been a women's rights activist for, I think, close to 30 years now. Um, when did your journey in activism begin? I am what you would call as an accidental activist, but sometimes I feel that my path actually was chosen for me. Anyway, whether it's accidental or a chosen path, it is in the end actually one's own desire and steadfast steadfast commitment to make a difference that stood me through the years. Mm -hmm. So basically, I left legal practice thinking that it was for a short span at for a year or two, because I had a challenging pregnancy. It was in 1995. Okay. A friend introduced me to Women's Aid organization as I was getting utterly bored, staying at home, not doing anything. It just was terrible. <laughs> I mean, at that time, never heard of WO. Right. In 95, I was, you know, actually not exposed to human rights work even during my degree so much. You know, it was basic law that we were exposed to those years. So some of the things, I mean, of course, some human rights work you do, but not in so much detail as I knew then mm -hmm. uh, when I joined WAO. So when I joined, I thought, you know, I was just like helping out any other organization and very naive about many issues. So I started doing uh, basic admin work, you know, answering telephone calls, taking women in crisis, right. uh, hospitals, accompany them to court. So I did all the legwork, uh, you know, lot, taking them to police station to lodge reports. I mean, it was uh, such an eye opener for me at that point in time to see the kind of endurance women would put up with and not get get uh, get out of the situation. And I understood when I started talking to the women why they put up, you know, with the with the kind of agony that they go through. Mm. And uh, I also enjoyed the study sessions we used to have there, and that was my training ground to understand the dynamics of violence. It also helped me break down the myths that I had of some stereotypical perceptions of why women did not leave. You mentioned that, you know, activism was something you got into accidentally. Once you got into it, though, because you are someone that um, you stuck around, um, you know, it may be something that you got into accidentally, but you stuck yeah. around for years and years and years. Um, do you remember a particular, perhaps a turning point or a story or, or a moment um, very early on that made you you know, go, okay, um, uh, I know what I'm fighting for. Um, this is something that's very important to me. And this is what I want to dedicate uh, a large part of my life to. Um, do you, was there a particular turning point for you? I don't think it's a turning point. I think it's mm -hmm. a series of events. And 
you realize that if you don't do it, who else will do it? I mean, especially talking to the women at the shelter, what, you know, what, what dawned on me also was, I don't remember a particular point in time, but what dawned on me was, if I was one of them, would there, some, would there be someone to help me? Hmm. And I think those kind of questions uh, came to my mind, you know, and who would be there? So I started thinking, if I don't do it, why should I expect someone else to do it? Uh, and there were some of the discussions I used to have with my family, especially my husband, uh, Bok, you know, uh, and we, will, we both said, you know, we cannot expect others to do something which you believe in. You have to do it yourself. And that's how I started getting involved because I found the discussions, the analysis fascinating because of it, you know, it blew away the myths that I had, you know. And, and what were some of the myths that you had? That you know, women were not strong enough to leave. Right. You know, but there's a whole load of reasons. Women are strong to put up with the Actually, it's mm-hmm. the reverse. They stayed back because they had children to look after and probably they were not the breadwinners. They didn't have the money. How do you get out? You know, these perceptions a lot of us had. I said, why the hell do you put up with this kind of violence that you go through, you know? And why do you put up with the discrimination at work, but, uh, you know, the harassment that you face? There's a multitude of reasons why. And it doesn't matter whether you're poor or you're well-to-do, you had property. It's the shame that you go through, that you beat yourself up and you think it's your fault. So these were some of the things <clears throat> that I learned through having these meetings and study sessions. And how did Association of Women's Lawyers come about? See, at that point in time, in the early years of JAG, the, the Joint Action Group for Gender Equality, Association of Women Lawyers, AWL, was part of JAG. Mm. And then it drifted away and uh, and it no longer was active, no longer involved in anything, and we nobody knew about AWL. So my friend, a few friends, legal friends, thought, hey, we need to revive AWL. So we attended the AGM, and uh, we got elected in, and uh, and then when I was president. I started uh, getting many of the groups involved uh, with activism, with uh, the other women's rights organizations like WAO and all that. And I pushed AWL to rejoin JAG, the Joint Action Group, and become part of the women's movement. Uh, Because, you know, AWL was instrumental in drafting the Domestic Violence Act in those days with North Dr. Noor Farida and all who were involved. Uh, so it was 
it was never my intention to uh, join AWL with this knowledge that I want to be president at that time. Never. I, it again was a progression, you know. So I, when, during my presidency, I, you know, we used to hear about issues of sexual harassment within the legal profession. And so I initiated a baseline survey on the working conditions of male and female lawyers in 2014. So that was a very uh, first time that the bar, uh, well, I managed to persuade the bar to give me the data uh, because they will not release the data unless they were convinced on what I was going to do. So that survey was not just on sexual harassment alone, uh, because if it was just on sexual harassment, no one, no one during 2014 would have answered the survey in those days. So we looked at broader issues of gender bias that's within the legal profession, whether there is a discrepancy in terms of salary as a lawyer, as a partner, attitude, promotion. So it was much wider, but it included sexual harassment. And I, I was very happy that you know it got attention and uh, thanks to Dr. Kaur, Dr. Kaur, who was at that time to her commissioner, she uh, enlisted uh, the law faculty of UM and the gender department uh, because I was happened to man happened to sit next to her at one of these human rights meetings and I talked to her about it and she said, okay, we'll do this together. Right. It was amazing how, again, a progression where you just sit next to someone, you talk about it, and boom, there it is. I'm very curious to know about your family, uh, Mira, because um, when you were growing up, did your parents or you know family members discuss politics, uh, human rights, uh, um, things regularly? Because you said um, this whole thing was something you stumbled into. I'm, yeah. I'm very curious to know how they reacted to you um, deciding to, you know, once you, you stumbled into it and then you decided to stick around and continue and tread down this path of, of human rights and women's rights activism, how did your family react to that? My dad by then had passed on, but my early years, okay, my dad was a cricketer. He loved cricket right. and he was involved in TPC, Tamilian Physical Silonis Association. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was a president for a few years. And he was always involved in charity work, some form or the other. I have an interesting story to share about my foster brother, who is Bazit. Okay. He's Pakistani Muslim. During the 70s, I think, there was a call out for assistance uh, when there were floods in Jalan Pahang. And Bazit and his family were living there. So there was a call out in the papers and my dad reached out and fostered this young Muslim boy who was about to sit for Form 3 exams. And I have three brothers, so add on another one, you know. <laughs> so he, he was so lovely and he fitted so well. So he decided to stay with us until he completed his Form 5 exams. And we always kept in touch and attended family gatherings and still in touch. So dad always said, you know, you have to pave the way to do good and help others. And that is kind of like, we grew up with, and it's. I think my brothers are also in, were involved in Rotary and something or the other. 
uh, yeah, I think that's how we, you know, it is passed on without having to be told. Mm. You see, you you emulate what your parents did, you know. So even when my parents were, my dad was alive. Every time we drive past a mosque, he would pray. Drive right. past temple, Hindu temple, he would pray, or a church, he would pray. He would just, you know, in the, in the car. Mm-hmm. So I remember those moments vividly. Although he was a staunch Hindu, but any form of morality, good good morals is good. And that's why in boarding school, he wanted me to attend church also. It's interesting that you grew up um, with four brothers. uh, Three brothers. Three brothers. Yes. Uh, How was that dynamics like? If my three brothers were here listening to you, they would probably say, she was spoiled. (laughs) (laughs) They treated me like princesses until Mm -hmm. today they do. I have a very close relationship with my brothers. Very, very close. And with my sister-in-laws. And in fact, even with my husband's side, I have a close relationship. Family means everything to me. And uh, and I think uh, that's how dad always, and mom, dad, because I'm very close to my mom's family and my dad's family. Okay. So, and in fact, my mom's sisters and uh, kids and all of them, they always came and stayed in our house. Uh, and we, you know, so the relatives are all very close growing up. So for me, uh, it means a world to me having my cousins, and I love it. And I still, lo- I still keep, we still keep in touch. We meet every week, you know. So I love that. Hmm. And uh, yeah, so yeah. Uh, the women are very strong in my family, in my cousins, both sides of the family. Very vocal, <laughs> very strong. On the show with me today is women's rights activist Mira Samanda. After the break, we talk about some of the biggest changes she's seen in Malaysia throughout her journey in activism. We'll be back with more on Good Things, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Good Things, the show where we talk to good people who are doing good things. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is women's rights activist Mira Samander, who at one point served as the president of WAO for 11 years. So Mira, do you remember um, how y'all used to organize and mobilize back in the day? Because you've been doing this for a while. And these days, um, as you know, you know, a lot of um, mobilization takes place on social media. A lot of awareness campaigns takes place on social media. Back then, the, in the 90s, there wasn't any of this. You know, the internet was just slowly becoming a thing. Um, what was it like back then when it, when it comes to, you know, pushing for change, organizing, mobilizing, um, protesting? How did y'all do it? No, it was the traditional way of Oh, calling up, using the phone and calling up people. Hey, let's have a meeting. Right. We need to discuss. And we had regular physical meeting. So, you know, when you have regular physical meetings, the friendship, the bond is there among the women's groups. You know, mm. uh, we have a very strong foundation. And not just as activists, but as friends we developed, you know. Uh, so when someone says, hey, we need to do something about this 
this is ridiculous. We need to lobby for change. Okay, then we will have do all the placards, the protests, then we'll have meetings to discuss who says what, who does what, who's in charge of it. So uh, that traditional way is, uh, it was very exciting. Uh, the fear was also there uh, that, you know, we all lived in a culture of fear during that time. Uh, I remember during the Article 11 roadshow, do you remember Article 11, Freedom of uh, Religion? Yes. And it all, it all started with the Shamla case, the controversial cases and all. There were protesters. Uh, I was uh, one of the speakers in Penang, Johor and Malacca. So the protests in Penang and Johor, that was horrific. Uh, I believe the police were not forceful enough to stop the threats. And then banging on the hall doors, when we were inside, that was quite frightening. Uh, even when, uh, I think when we had uh, encounters at the police station with perpetrators, the police, I mean, not, not just perpetrators, when WO Shelter mm -hmm. was raided by the police sometime years ago, the because the perpetrator had connections with the local police and he suspected that we had his wife living uh, at our shelter. I mean, that was quite scary and a lot of screaming and bullying tactics were used. But what was great was the women's groups got together and we protested and we had a press conference to highlight the police harassment. It's the, it's the coming together of, of uh of friends and activists, I think you really need to have that building of uh, not just ally, but friendship. It helps a lot. I was talking to YB Maria Chin last week and she brought up something interesting about how these days, um, the wider public is in support for women, of women's rights. Of course, you face a lot of resistance as we still live in a patriarchal society and all of that, but there is a little bit more space for conversations and also how, um, you know, championing women's rights is largely seen as something positive. Um, um, even the government, you know, champions women's rights. Uh, you know, sometimes their intention may be, may be good. Um, they may, may have like actual intentions, um, proper intentions. Sometimes it's just to win brownie points. But the fact that you can use women's rights issues of progressive women's rights um, policies as a way to champ, you know, get brownie points is in a way, uh, you know, indicates that, you know, some changes has occurred over the years. What sort of resistance did y'all used to face back in the day? Um, whether, it, you know, resistance from, from the state itself or by the general public when y'all are trying to push for women's rights issues? I'll give you an example of the uh, the campaign, the Mahmed Beda campaign. Okay. Uh, at that time, when Jack, uh, we were, you know, it goes back as far as Maria. Maria and I were involved in the campaign uh, where the late Tony Kassim was standing as an independent candidate. Uh, and uh, do you remember? Yeah. So, right. okay, the late because uh, that was, I can't remember the year 2008, maybe. 
Mm-hmm. I, I can't remember. And unfortunately, Tony, uh, we were also actively involved. And Maria was, I think, the, the manager of the campaign, I believe. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, Tony had cancer and she had to retract her candidacy. Right. So we were quite actually uh, distraught, distraught about, you know, what happened to Tony and what was happening to Tony. But she also did not want us to waste our investment we had on such brilliant work that we did. So we changed our strategy to the Mark Beda campaign. So basically, Mark Beda is like a typical a Malay woman who goes around campaigning for women's rights. Right. So we changed our strategy and we started highlighting what are the demands that women wanted. Uh, so we started the slogan, shopping for a candidate. So your ideal candidate should have the following list of issues in his or her manifesto. So we started campaigning, going to different constituencies when the election was around. So mm-hmm. I'll go to Sharizad's campaign or, you know, we march in with our pink selendang and walk <laughs> in, you know. So what was very interesting was when we were, I think, campaigning in Ipoh. And then when we heard that Sami Wele was campaigning somewhere around Ipoh, so three of us uh, activists, we were very brave. I think maybe now foolish, I don't know. The <laughs> things were gone wrong. So we, uh, we went for this rally. There was no women in sight. Only reporters and all these burly men who looked so scary. And they were chanting and trying, trying to receive Sami Velu as the hero. And here there were three women with our placards trying to get close to Sami Velu and asking all these questions about what he thought about women's rights. Would he include A, B, C, D, E in his manifesto and all that? Right. Of course, the East Indian men, they cornered us and they got very angry and very rowdy. And we, the three of us were surrounded. And That's terrible. Shocked me. I, was, I became brave. Because I started talking to the cameras because there were all these reporters and Malaysia Kini was filming us and I started giving my speech. It was captured on Malaysia Kini uh, video and news and other papers. And these burly men took our placards and broke them into half. I was still not scared at that time. I just was angry. But I was empowered because the crew were there. Mm. You know, on hindsight, it was so foolish at that time. But, you know, but anyway, after 30 minutes, the protesters went into the hall, started listening to what Sami Velu had to say, and we just <laughs> left, went to right. the nearby restaurant. And although we were followed, and but later some of our Jack friends came and rescued us. So, you know, it is not just about police harassment or the state harassment. It's about the public at large who also were 
not ready or we were maybe too ahead of our time. I don't know what it was right. to talk about women's rights at that time. Or they were not willing to listen. Uh, but we had to enter that kind of territory to make a difference. Hmm. If not, you go to safe space, you've already converted the converted, you know. That's right. You yeah. need to enter places, uh, well, be not be foolish, but uh, you need to, you know, stretch your boundary. You need to do that to be able to, you know, make some sense out of it. On that note, right, when it comes to women's rights in Malaysia, what are some of the biggest changes you've seen um, when you first started compared to today? I want to talk about Article 8.2 of the Federal Constitution, how we managed to get it included in our Constitution. So W.L. was involved, at the time I was president, and W.L. was involved with the Stop Violence Against Women campaign with the ministry. The, and I think at uh, that time was Dr. Sharizad. Okay. Halfway through the campaign, she changed the campaign strategy from you know violence against women to women against violence. I mean, that's a whole change altogether. Right. Women against violence. It could be violence against what? Cats, dogs, women. <laughs> exactly. So we were quite upset. So, so we at WO decided to pull out of the campaign. And I had to deliver the message to her. Of course, she was very angry with me. But a day or two later, she called me and she asked me, okay, what does Jack want? As she wanted to make an announcement on Hari Wanita Day. So I said, I could give me two days and I'll come back. So some of us within Jack, the key members at the time, Shanti Dariam, Ivy Josia, Zaina, and I think Maria and all of us uh, got together. We started discussing the need to amend our federal constitution to include gender as a form of discrimination. Because right at that time, we had race, religion, and all that, but nothing on gender. So I was tasked to persuade Dr. Sharizat with Shanti. Shanti Dairin was the former CEDAW committee member. Right. So with the two of us, I was okay about that. You know, I had Shanti with me. Unfortunately, at the meeting, Shanti got lost and couldn't find a way for the meeting. So it was left to me to persuade her. Oh my gosh, did I hide my fear so well? I was so worried. <laughs> I mean, what happens if I could not convince her? How do I tell the women's groups that I failed? Anyway, after the discussions with her, okay, she said she would revert. Mm -hmm. Revert, she did. And she said she will make the announcement that we will have our gender included. And I think that was my proudest moment on time in my life that, you know, such a... Uh, big, it was, you know, the starting, such a big uh, change for women across Malaysia, you know, mm -hmm. to have gender included in the, uh, in the constitution. So it is, it was, because we used to have a lot of meetings with Dr. Shariza, 
you know, what I said that daughter, she was always present at our meetings. Right. She listened. Even if we didn't get what a lot of things, we didn't get what we wanted, we didn't understand the politics of it. I mean, didn't agree with the politics. But she listened and she communicated with us. And she had that connection with us. So we could go up to her and tell her. And there's a lot of difference now, I find, with that. Uh, mm -hmm. Well, with Hannah, we did have that too. And uh, YB Hannah, you What is taken the sexual harassment bill so long to be passed and and finally after 20 21 years when it finally got tabled in parliament um it's still something that is imperfect something that uh, you know it's not what you know it's not in its ideal form it's not the sexual harassment bill that women's rights activists um, you know pushed for in 2018 what's the conundrum here what's the resistance here when it comes to sexual harassment bill let me give you a bit of history about it or mm -hmm. say her story <laughs> <laughs> okay. we actually the jack group uh, had drafted uh, a sexual harassment bill in 2001 uh, and we presented it to dr sharizad at that time which was minister it went up to cabinet it uh, but there was a very strong lobby group, Malaysian Employees Federation. They had such a strong hold and we lost it at that time. And we redrafted it again in 2019, 18, around, sorry, 2017, and presented again in 2019. Uh, because, you know, since 2001 to 2019, uh, sorry, uh, yeah. So many things have changed because online harassment was rampant. So we had new issues included. Mm -hmm. And it was during uh, YB Hannah's time. And then uh, with the turn of political events, then YB Rina Harun took over. What we have now is not what the ideal at all. Right. Uh, what... There are a lot of changes we should have included. What I don't think, I think there was some political will, but not strong enough because if you can change, do a turnaround because Malaysian Employees Federation were not happy with some of our, our issues in the draft. The understanding of sexual harassment was not strong enough. The Me Too movement, of course, helped. And also, you know, the lobbying among women's groups harder and harder helped. But there's always some other issue that it took priority came first. But it's a good start, I, I must say. So, you know, throughout your years in activism, the journey can sometimes seem bleak in the sense that, you know, you're, you're faced with so many defeats over the years um so many roadblocks um just to get eventually one thing passed um years and years later and, and that one thing could be very significant what has kept you going all these years amidst numerous defeats 
there's so many legislation that needs change. Mm -hmm. And I I know I can do it with the assistance of my other activist friends. I know I have good lobbying skills through the years I've learned. And why do I need to put it to waste if I don't do it? And it benefits not just me, but my future generation, my kids. It's also very exciting to be involved. I have been involved in also the past few years, the redrafting of the Persons with Disability Act. And people were surprised why I was getting involved. But, you know, I could not find a particular group in the early years. I tried, but I failed many times. I think the, there was a universe, you know, the universe has its way of making me wait because <laughs> it needed me in the early years of activism to be involved in the drafting of the gender equality bill and the sexual harassment bill. I think the, that experience with those two legislations of drafting has helped me to be involved in redrafting the PWD Act. So it was very strange how I got involved with it. I have a second son who has a disability. So I have been, you know, looking and searching until I met this person, Dr. Nazia Piyako, who right. herself is a disabled activist. So there was a protest on the 1st of July, and that was my birthday. And she asked me to join. I normally, on my birthdays, is a day out for me. I never go anywhere. <laughs> I usually go out with my husband the whole day. But this time, I had this angry feeling that I should attend. And believe me, that was my starting point of my world of entering the PWD community and lobbying for changes with the ministry previous and uh, the present. So there are three lawyers, three of us lawyers, and three other PWT, PWD, Persons with Disability Activists, who have been meeting online, even during the pandemic, every Friday for the past few years, researching and discussing and bringing in experts uh, from different countries to share with us. So we've made presentations with the ministry, with uh, Dr. Ras Adiba, who's waiting for us to finish it. So that is that the, the PWD uh, drafting of the act and entering or getting into involved in activism there was something that I always wanted to do, but I had to wait my turn. And yeah. I think that was how my uni the universe is telling me. It's strange. It's really strange how it, it, it has worked out for me. And what do you tell people, especially younger people who, you know, they're like, Malaysia will never change. You know, you just look at what's going on. How do you have hope for this country? It's not going to go anywhere. Nothing will change. It's so backwards and so on and so forth. I mean, do you think the grass is greener on the other side? Don't you find this your home? This is your home. So what are you talking about? I mean, you want to leave because of employment opportunities and things like that. Go ahead. But let's not forget, you were born and bred here. This is your home. You are a citizen. And yes, there will always be challenges. 
anywhere you go, everywhere you go, it's different sort of challenges. Politics is everywhere. Human rights challenges is everywhere. Violations is everywhere. You have to pick your battles as to how much you want to get involved or you don't want to. It's okay if you don't get involved, but in your tiny way, you could, or in a big way, you could. Talking about it, you are making change to another friend. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it's, it's not just you go out, protest, you are involved in drafting, you're involved in research. No, discussions with your friends, making someone else see the other side. That is also some sort of activism for me. So let's not belittle any tiny change that is for the better. I'm always optimistic, although the struggle has been long for many changes within women's rights. Sometimes I want to pull my hand because, you know, I've been talking about this for years and years and years. I mean, we may not expect big changes like, okay, Article 82 was a big change. Getting Domestic Violence Act was a big change. Getting sexual harassment legislation, even though it's not our ideal bill that we want, is a change. On that note, Mira, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. That was Mira Samander. She's a women's rights activist, a former president of the Women's Aid Organization, former president of the Association of Women's Lawyers. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can check out the podcast. It's available on the BFM app, bfm.my, even Spotify, Google Podcasts, pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. You just have to search for good things. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Good Things, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.